This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am the narrator, the voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears, but your mind, and allow me to take you back on four feet time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line.
choice is simple. Do I choose love or do I choose fear? Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Tonio. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm great. I mean, it's early, but it's, you know, the light is just starting across the valley and it's just, it's glorious. So I'm delighted that we have a chance to finally do this. Yes, me too. We've been corresponding for a few weeks now. And I should, I should tell your listeners right off the bat that you have been so wonderful in the sense that I haven't really had a chance to talk to anyone about my book who's actually read the book. And, you know, the, the book is, as you know, quite long. It has 44 chapters. And I even recommended, you know, just using 13 of those chapters to get a sense of the book. But you delved right into it. So I am just so delighted to be able to talk to someone who can... You know, who has some background and we can have a real conversation. Yes, and I feel very much the same on my side of this equation that I get to talk with somebody who has such a broad background in all of this as well, which I'm very curious to find out more about, which we'll get into very shortly. But first, I just want to briefly introduce you so people have more of a sense of who you are. You're a photographer a musician, an African dance teacher, and a jazz DJ at a local radio station where you live in Taos, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. You're also a writer and the director of the Association of Noetic Practitioners. And most importantly for this conversation, you're the author of this really wonderful, wonderful book, Curriculum of the Soul, which won the Gold Award from Nautilus Book Awards for the best book in the personal growth category. And I have to say that I've so enjoyed reading this book. I've been reading this book for the last few weeks and savoring it, you know, reading a chapter at a time usually, and also taking breaks throughout to take notes and to reflect on things. And I'm so impressed that you essentially cover everything in this book (laughs) (laughs) or just about it does cover a lot of ground and i really wanted you know i've been thinking about this for what over 30 years and i realized when i first encountered charles olson's poem which is called a plan for a curriculum of the soul that i was taken with it but he is so esoteric that I really wanted something more pragmatic, and I wanted to create a map. So going back 30 years, there was some part of me, I could express this consciously, but knew I didn't have enough experience of being alive to even come close to approaching this topic. And it really wasn't until after, obviously, a bunch of other things, married, divorced, have a child, all this kind of stuff, that I could finally put something together as a map. And and let me make it clear this map is as much for me as it might be for somebody else, that now my big task is seeing how well I can live by this very map that I've created. That's such a great point. I mean, essentially, this is your map. This is like your equivalent of your journey through life, as is represented in the Tarot. Uh Uh-huh, exactly. Because, you know, I, I still do pull Tarot cards once a week, just to get a sense, just to see what they're saying. And it's always interesting. 
I, and I think that there are always other energies happening, and that was part of what I needed to learn in those 30 years. Other energies are happening in our lives beyond what we're trying to direct consciously. And I think that's part of the point of the book, is that, or maybe it's a simplistic kind of argument, but I'm presenting the idea that there's the ego-centered world and there's a soul-centered world, and how can they interface with a, a certain kind of grace? And right now we live primarily in an ego-centered world that is focused on linear thinking, that is really quite obsessed with politics and economics and catastrophe and celebrity and success. And this is not to say that any of that stuff is bad, but it's just so focused that the soul world tends to get excluded. And I'm just trying to bring a voice, that voice, back to the table and say, well, let's keep paying attention to this because when we lose sight of the soul world, then things start falling apart, which is where we tend to be in our culture right now. You know, there's that great line from Yeats's poem, The Second Coming, where he says, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. That's exactly where we are right now, which is so fascinating to me. And it's actually, in a sense, it's a wonderful place to be, despite how unsettling and disturbing it can be. I totally agree with you. I was thinking about how thrilling it was just in the last couple of days and thinking, what a great time to be alive because it's really calling upon us to take some responsibility and to do some things and to really be alive and not just, you know, sort of like in, in the Matrix films, remember how the people who were sort of in the trance of consensual reality, they were taking the blue pills and then the people who really wanted to get to know the truth were taking the red pills. So, for instance, here we have this great 16-year-old Greta Thunberg who comes along, and interestingly, here's a person that is it's as if she just took the red pill and said, here's the truth, even though we've had other voices, like Bill McKibbitt and Naomi Klein, people like that, other voices that are talking about what's happening to the planet in terms of our ecology. She's coming along, and actually, as a 16-year-old, it's astonishing because she is creating kind of a moral compass that the adults haven't really been able to muster. Yes, and she's actually directly confronting them and holding that's, them accountable. That's, that's amazing. She's holding them accountable. And there, you know, what's so interesting to me about this is that if you go back in time, say like the civil rights movement, there was, and still is, it's still happening, but that's very much spiritually based, you know, in the idea of equanimity, that this is just simply, you know, how it is in the spiritual world. There's no reason it can't be that way here on this planet. Now, here comes Greta Thunberg along. This time, instead of a spiritual thing, it's more of an existential crisis, and she's directly going after and, and referring to the soul of the world. How are we going to take care of this? And there's very rarely do you ever hear that in our conversations, certainly publicly. It's like, what are we going to do about the soul of the world, much less about our own individual souls? And she's presenting it so clearly and so simply. Oh, you're absolutely right. I just love her. <laughs> Me too. I love her because there is just no mincing words. She's getting down to it. You know, it's interesting. It's like I, I think of this this image, Tonio, of two people on the side of a road, 
and they're arguing over whether they should buy the Toyota Prius or the Ford Expedition. And, of course, they're spending all their time arguing. And in the meantime, Greta Thunberg is in her solar-powered sailboat and heading on to where things need to happen. Mm -hmm. That's where we are in our culture right now. Yes, I've so enjoyed watching videos of her talking, and I also especially enjoy watching when she invites other young people up to the stage or the podium to join her. And I've been so moved by seeing older young people around her showing so much concern and appreciation for her because she has this incredible courage and drive to just speak her mind and tell it as it is, which I think many of us, even though we want to do that and we feel this incredible need, don't feel like we can do that or that anybody will listen to us and therefore it's not even a viable option. And for her, it's like, not only is it a viable option, but it is the only thing to do. You're absolutely right. And I, and I just love you. Know, it's almost as if there, you know, because we live in a culture that really lacks, you know, the, the sort of the old idea of initiation. It's as if these young people, whether it's Greta Thunberg, remember when the students at Parkland High School really spoke out, that they have gotten so focused because they're really looking at it from an existential point of view and they have completely stepped up. And the, I think the problem with the adult world is that we've gotten so fractured. And, and I, I think back, like, remember how this summer was the 50th anniversary of the moon landing? And that may have been, to me, one of those last places in our culture when we were actually looking at the same images. And since that time, it's really gotten quite fractured, so that you, know, you should think of all the different media outlets, you know, venues for news, things like that that everybody's attention is now going to wherever it is that they're sourcing their news or sourcing their information, they're sourcing their ideas, whatever. So we're not really on the same page as a culture anymore that everybody, and that now it's gotten into this polarization. And to me, that's yet another indication of where we've lost our soul, because for the soul, imagination is really very much a part of the package, and imagination would be the place that would create compromise between two very polarized points of view, and yet compromise, i.e. soul, is what's missing in the equation at the moment. Well, since you brought that up, I would love for you to talk more about that. I'm remembering this phrase, I don't remember who said it, but war is a failure of imagination. In fact, there's this little story, and I have it here, that's very short, and I'll just read it. At the end of the talk, someone from the audience asked the Dalai Lama, why didn't you fight back against the Chinese? The Dalai Lama looked down, swung his feet just a bit, then looked back up at us and said with a gentle smile, well, war is obsolete, you know. Then after a few moments, his face grave, he said, of course the mind can rationalize fighting back, but the heart, the heart would never understand. Then you would be divided within yourself the heart and the mind, and the war would be inside you. So I think that's speaking to this very thing you're talking about, that we don't imagine this is our tendency in the literal world, which is we always want to externalize everything. 
know that the war, for instance, is in Afghanistan. It's some other location on the planet in the Congo, rather than saying, well, if we're tolerating it, to what extent does that, in fact, exist inside us so that we're allowing it to take place elsewhere in the world? But then there's the feeling, this like visceral feeling of anger and rage in response to what we perceive as these outrageous violations of, of our humanity and, you know, to see war and people killing each other and, and being outrageously deceitful about it. The rage is very understandable, but, but I think most people who are not at that level of understanding think about their feelings of rage as being something that's related to the heart because it's a feeling. Rage, anger is a feeling. And to say that the heart wouldn't understand anger or rage, I think might go over many people's heads. Well, and I would make a little discernment in there because I think the heart does and understand anger and rage. Those are really very natural reactions for a human being. But the anger and rage that's coming about, it seems to me, is really as a reaction to how much we have been neglecting the emotional body as a culture. So that when something finally does materialize, say a mass shooting, then all of a sudden we're appalled because we never really have been in touch enough with our own feelings to say way back when, like, this is unacceptable behavior. So... So, for instance, here's again that kind of that, that image I was telling you before with Greta Thunberg. Imagine there are two people on the side of the road, you know, Americans, and they're arguing over the Second Amendment. And then out on the road is the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, and she is racing to the State House to sign the bill 10 days after the mass shooting in Christchurch to ban assault weapons. That she just got right after it. But she's doing, to me, the soulful thing because she's basically saying in a very immediate way that life is far more precious and sacred than a rigid belief system. Does that make sense as far as, you know, I think that there has been a certain abandonment of the emotional body, and particularly, now now we're getting into a whole other terrain, but it's, it's quite related, that... You know, I've always felt, Tonio, and I didn't mention this in the book, but I've always felt that the conversation between women has never really stopped, in essence. I mean, there are, of course, exceptions, but it's never really stopped. And, in fact, I was even thinking about this when I did a show last week that was on transformation, and I was reflecting and thinking the most probably significant transformation from my little point of view in the last hundred years has been the strides women have made on this planet. And part of the reason that I see that is, of course, the actual strides, but there have been no negative effects whatsoever from those strides that women have made forward, with the exception, you know, they're the politics, of course, within the feminist movement, all that kind of stuff. And here's the difference. With men, and this is a Robert Bly idea, around the end of the 18th century, when the Industrial Revolution came along, Men were taken out of the fields and put into factories. And it was at that point, men's conversations basically stopped. And I think that men are still trying to figure out 
what that conversation is and even pick up the threads wherever they were back in the late 1800s. And they haven't really done, from my perspective, the parallel work that the women have done in making their strides forward. And it's a real disappointment for me because we really haven't had a male movement. I mean, there's been attempts. You know, there was Robert Bly, Michael Mead, and James Hillman with their sort of poetic mythic thing. But it never really got a lot of traction. So back to what you're referring to in terms of the rage and this whole thing about war. For the most part, it's men who are making these decisions, not women. And then you can get into this idea of, like, to what extent have men truly been initiated? You know, again, there's this old Irish idea, which I love, which is that a man should never be given, or no one should be ever given a weapon until they know how to dance. And in essence, what it's saying is, really should never have a weapon until we understand our humanity first. Isn't that a wild idea? Yeah, it's so beautiful, and it's so essential. You mentioned that we don't have a method of or means of initiation in our culture, and it's so critical for us in dealing with the shadow elements of ourselves, and especially men to be able to somehow find a way to integrate those powerful experiences that if we don't learn how to do it, those energies become dangerous and violent. That's exactly right. There's a recent essay that Michael Mead wrote, and the essay is called The March of Violence, and anyone can find it online. But it's just a short little paragraph here, and what he's referring to are the mass shootings and the very thing you just spoke to. And here's the paragraph. It says, An essential test of any culture involves whether it can find an imagination greater than violence, brutality, and greed. When the ceremony of innocence becomes drowned again, we have to deny the part of ourselves that wants to retreat from the agony of life. We have to struggle against the forces that would dehumanize any of us and find ways back to the center again where the humanity and nobility of everyone can be recognized and nourished and blessed. Yes. And that's our, that's our work. That's our work as human beings. That's exactly right. So I think, for instance, in the case of you doing this particular show, you're doing this really wonderful thing because you're bringing that work forward in the conversation with other people to try and bring these voices back into the larger mix, because as you know, a lot of those voices, including mine and yours, can get drowned out by, you know, it's like with the news being obsessed about impeachment at the moment so that the other voices aren't really getting heard. And it's certainly, you know, it's an interesting topic. It's an important topic. It's not the only topic. Right. And it's not the most important topic either. No, and, you know, as Greta Thunberg points out, without a world, a planet that's inhabitable, all the other issues go away. Exactly. That's just how it is. And when it's so remarkable to me, Tonya, when I think of, like, recently there was a survey and it was talking to voters about what they thought were their pressing needs and depending on the demographic and economic, you know, area of that particular voter, you'd hear these issues. And I was astonished to hear not one person saying, we have to have a planet we can actually live on. Mm-hmm. And to me, this is, this is where Greta is so wonderful. She's coming along and saying, you guys keep wanting to get lost in this other stuff. 
you know, that it must be immigration, it must be income disparity, it must be job security, whatever. And she said, if we can't breathe the air, if it's too hot to live here, that stuff doesn't matter. Right, and we're, we're still seeing this planet as being infinite within our very limited dysfunctional sense of imagination and failing to realize that we're all actually in this really tiny little boat together and the boat is about to get swamped by a huge wave or a huge storm. Now you're speaking the red pill language. The blue pill language is basically business as usual. And that's the part that's discouraging for me, which is like going to an airport and saying, well, I, I think in fact the statistic is that tourist traffic has tripled like in the last 20 years, something like that. So here we are with business as usual, and I think this is kind of one of the almost like it's the shadow side of capitalism. We get so used to our comfort zone and doing whatever it is that we're doing that that comfort zone is in fact what becomes the priority. And, and of course, it's really a very narcissistic way of looking at the world rather than looking at the world you know, as this whole other thing. Contrary to what our president has to say when he was saying it's not about globalism, actually, it is about the globe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't have a globe. I'm, I'm not sure if people have had the experience to understand the fragility. And this is where it gets very interesting for someone who has gone through something crazy in their life, whether they've confronted suicide, depression, the loss of a loved one, things like that, then I think people start to understand the fragility of all of this. It wasn't a Carl Sagan who said that the earth is just a dust moat on a sunbeam. That's how fragile it really is. And until you can actually feel that, I don't think people will respond accordingly. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that I, I love so much about this book is that you bring in so many other voices in such profoundly beautiful ways. This book is full of wonderful poetry and fabulous quotes. And reflecting on that, it seems like you must have been collecting these quotes and poetry for many, many years. Absolutely. You know, now, some of them, you know, I was looking up because I wanted to fill certain ideas out, but no, a lot of them I had collected in advance. The poems I'd been using already on my own radio show, so I was familiar with that. And I guess this is kind of related to my childhood. I was trying to find some kind of context, some kind of understanding as far as this wild ride of being alive. You know, when I grew up, Tonio, I had parents that were very much parents of that time. They weren't, you know, they were not abusive. They were, you know, we grew up middle class. This was in the Hudson Valley of New York State. And because it was at that time the post-World War II generation, that's when I grew up, it was really all about the status quo. And that was really what was impressed upon me. But there was some part of me that really was saying, well, there must be more to it than just the status quo. There must be something else. And I would start seeing little things because at that time Bob Dylan is starting to do his music. You know, the beat poets were doing their thing. All of this stuff was happening. And there's always been a fringe, always in, in every culture. But that was where things got more interesting for me. It's like, so where is there actually a movement? Because we need the center. We always need that, all of us in our lives in some sense. But at the same time, I think the soul gets bored when things get stuck. 
And so if we're just hanging out in that status quo all the time or in our comfort zone, there's a certain point where something is going to happen to shake it up. And whether we do it consciously or the soul is going to take charge. You know, for instance, I have a sibling right now who's going through a third round of depression. It's all related to the stress that he has created at his own work. He works for himself. And I keep reminding him, I said, the soul keeps calling you. When are you going to answer the call? Because clearly your body is not happy being this stressed out for this long. And in between, actually, he had two depressions, the first one in 2008, another one about three years later. Then two years ago, he had a stroke, and now he's going into his third depression. And I keep trying to remind him, I said, how many chances do you think you're going to get at this? A lot of people, you know, they have the heart attack and they're gone. We're very rarely given all these second chances. It's like, you're so lucky. When are you going to do the work? So getting back to your book, the title of which is Curriculum of the Soul. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that term soul is widely misunderstood and represented in various different ways. I would love for you to talk about what the soul is and what it means to you in relation to other aspects of our being. You bring up such a great point, Tonya, which is that the soul, when you, as soon as you mention that word, that there's you know, 50 different threads that are heading in different directions from that idea. And depending on one's religious background, philosophical background, it, you know, could be a mythological background, that you're going to get a slightly different answer for all of this. You know, that, of course, there's going to be the literal person who's going to say, well, how much does it weigh? Where does it reside in the body? You know, then, then you get into this whole thing, because there are a lot of people that like to confuse the soul with the spirit. And I tend to make a distinction between those two. So for me, the soul really does exist. I don't think, though, that we could actually, for instance, put it under an electron microscope and say, oh, there it is. We have to get into more of an imaginative mindset that there is this thing that exists inside us, and the soul is very much connected, whether you want to use the term God, divine, whatever, that it's very much connected to that idea, and so it resides inside of us, and it's basically there, and it's really this kind of neutral thing in, in the sense that it really, like I, I have a quote in there from one of my teachers, Robert Waterman, where he says, the soul makes no distinction between the good, the bad, and the ugly. That it's really just so thrilled to have a body here on this planet to experience whatever it is that we can experience here on the planet. And then at that point, we get to start to make decisions as far as, well, to what extent do we want to work in line? Because I think when we're more in tune with whatever our souls have in mind, we're going to be living more in a place of grace rather than struggling all the time, being stressed out, whatever. In fact, I'll read a poem here. It's a short one. This is a Rilke poem that I had translated with a friend who grew up in Germany. And this is about this very idea of the soul coming down into the body and then what happens when we're here on the planet. The name of the poem is Give Me Your Hand. And here's the poem. God speaks to each one of us as we're created, then goes in silence with us from the night. As if through a cloud, 
these are the words we faintly hear. And this is a quote as if God is speaking. Sent out by your senses, go to your longing's edge, give me clothes. Burn like fire, bringing shadows that cover me completely. Let it all happen to you, beauty and terror. You must go on. No feeling is too far. Do not separate yourself from me. Close to here is the country called life. You will know you have entered by its seriousness. Give me your hand. That sounds like the voice of the soul. Yes, exactly. So this is the thing that's interesting, and I think sometimes people can get lost here, is that the soul, for instance, is not capable of driving a car. It's not really capable of, you know, physically preparing things for food. But it is there to inform us, for instance, should I drive the car slowly or quickly or, you know, recklessly. Usually it's the ego, this thing that gets us into trouble, and, you know, there, there are some religious traditions that really want us to sort of banish the ego. And I'm not really quite in line with that thinking. I think the ego has its place because the ego is what can, in fact, drive my car, prepare the food, do all these lovely things, write a book. But the soul is the thing, is the very thing that should be providing the direction, should be, in fact, give, you know, telling me to slow down where I need to slow down, telling me. It was like somehow my soul decided, Rick, we need to create this map in the form of a book, so that there's going to be something that first and foremost is really to help me, to articulate for me what it is that, you know, I'm doing here on this planet. So, you know, and maybe it'll be helpful for somebody else. You realistically, Tonio, I know this book will never be a bestseller. And that's simply because most people don't want to do the work. And that's okay. There's a quote in there somewhere where a student had asked Carl Jung, great psychotherapist, if there was any hope for Western civilization. And his answer was, only if enough people do their inner work. And that's where, if I was to have any hope, that's where it would lie, is right there. Mm -hmm. So tell me, what were your thoughts as far as, even before reading this book, what, what is your thought as far as the soul? Well... I have a fundamental issue with a lot of the terminology that we use, like words like God and spirit and soul. They annoy me in a way because they all come with a, a lot of mixed baggage. Yes. And when I'm trying to communicate in a meaningful way with other people, those words can be huge stumbling blocks. Mm -hmm. So... I always try to use the simplest language possible and to avoid those minds in that field of language and communication as much well, I as... I think that's, that's really great, Tonya. So, if you were to use a different, and it could even be a phrase, a different phrase for this idea of, you know, at least the way I'm presenting it, because I'm trying to strip the soul back down to kind of its essence, its core thing, and not have any of that baggage, but I realize what you're saying is absolutely true. What would be the phrase you might use? Boy, that's a challenge. I think what I would say is that there's this part of us, I mean, I always try to get down to the core, the essence. I love the word essence, 
because that was something that was part of the tradition that I, the non-traditional tradition that I had gotten involved with many, many, many years ago. And what it boils down to is finding a way to integrate all of the wide, crazy range of life experience in a meaningful way that makes it all whole. Whole in the sense of being able to open our whole being, our heart, our intellect, and our physical being. And when I say our physical being, I mean like, you know how when we get traumatized by experience, these traumas get locked in our body and it shuts us down on a physical level as well as emotional because there's really no separation between those elements. So it's about making this, this kind of wholeness that we can fully embrace on all levels of our being and that there's no separation. Like Gurdjieff talked about human beings as being three brain beings, but it's really all part of one. And that's, to me, that's the work that we are doing here, that we are charged with in our lives is to make sense of the whole thing as a wholeness and that there's no room to reject anything. Oh, that's lovely. In fact, I've always thought that to me would be the epitome of a spiritual, you know, a really loving spiritual perspective, which is that openness. And I quite agree with you that there are words that need sabbaticals. And soul may be one of those. I was just really trying to give a different take on it, in which I'm only using soul as sort of a concept as far as, you know, I was sort of being simplifying this idea of there's the ego-centered world, the soul-centered world, and how can we really integrate both of those. But, you know, within this idea of a soul-centered world, I was thinking, well, but what this really is talking about, how do we somehow keep juggling these four essential aspects of ourselves. In other words, the physical, the emotional, the mental, psychological, and the spiritual. And there tends to be, in our culture, to want to isolate one from the others. And I think what you were just speaking to is that very wholeness. In fact, isn't, as I remember the last time I looked up, it's been a while, but isn't that wholeness is the actual meaning of the word Catholic? Yes. I think you're right. Not being Catholic, I can't say that with any kind of definitive authority, but I think you're right. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm just saying of the word Catholic, I'm not going to refer to the religion specifically, because that has its own complexities as well, like, like a lot of religions. And I think that this path that you were mentioning, you know, your own particular path, is really more what's taking place now that religions have been losing their fire because they got stuck in their rule sets and they got stuck in certainly power structures, things like that. And they got a lot of bad histories. You know, for instance, sexual abuse, things like that. You know, it's interesting. You know, I tend not to think of Buddhism so much as a religion, really more as a philosophy, because there's no real Godhead like normally a religion would have. You know, of course, there's you know the Buddha nature, but the interesting thing about Buddhism to me, which is their path to get to the wholeness that you refer to, is that rather than adhering to rule sets, say like the Ten Commandments or something like that, 
It's doing this very shrewd psychological thing of look at the nature of how the mind works and how does one get out of, you know, there's that very natural tendency for all of us as we grow up to believe all the thoughts that are going on in our head. And Buddhism was coming along, and I think this was part of the thing I was trying. Certainly I have a lot of Buddhist quotes that are in my book, which is how do we create a little bit of distance from all these thoughts that we have in our head so that we can either let them pass by, we can investigate them, do whatever. Like a big turning point in my own life was when I went to a mystery school with that person I mentioned earlier, Robert Waterman, and he said quite succinctly, he said, you know, the point of mystery school is to really look at how the ego identifies. And when you can start creating a little bit of separation, because right now we live in a culture in which the identification, and it really is about all these identities, and now we have all these different groups depending on what your identity happens to be, which is creating, to me, more splintering rather than the very wholeness that you're talking about that you were studying in your particular path. I love that you just said that, and the way you said that, because that's exactly what we were doing in the mystery school that I was involved with. Beautiful. <laughs> and I Beautiful. Think, yeah. I, did, I wasn't aware that you had gone, so I'm so happy to hear that. And it totally makes sense why it feels such like we are so much on the same page about all this stuff, that it's as if we've been following the, virtually the exact same path. Yes, I agree. And that's kind of exciting because there's very few people I can really talk to about this. First, just finding people that, you know, I know plenty of people, friends that have read the book. Very few have read it all the way through, and it's lovely being around those people. Then to get to people that are at this other place that have, for instance, gone through a mystery school, because they're all over the planet, and have really done that particular work. So then a whole other conversation starts coming up. And then all these things can start weaving because it starts to give us a foothold in whatever map we're creating for our own lives. Because otherwise, we're back to that matrix idea of people just taking the blue pill and saying, well, I'm just going to believe, you know, I am whatever. You can create any identity that it is. I am this. And therefore, you're going to go and have a Facebook page, and you're going to be marching for your rights and all that. And then it gets into that crazy question of, oh, well, do my rights supersede now the rights of the other person's identity in their group? And we are back into that fractured society versus getting to the place, yes, I happen to be a white male. It's a little embarrassing at this point in time considering, you know, what's been happening with, with white men, you know, white men that are causing mass shootings, white men that are, you know, been doing horrible things to women for years and years and years. But... That's the reality. I'm a white male, but I don't walk out in the world and, and wear it like a badge. I walk out in the world as a human being. And how am I going to be, for instance, kind or compassionate or whatever? doesn't matter whether I'm encountering a tree or another person. How am I going to be human out in the world on a day-to-day -day basis and be a human to myself, first and foremost, so that I can go out in the world? In fact, I just was with somebody the other day, and I said, you know, I think it's my responsibility that I have to deal with my anger issues, my personal ones that have nothing to do with the outer world, but my personal ones, whatever they are, I have to deal with those first before going out in the world so that I don't lay it on the world 
And right now we live in a very interesting time where anger is being kind of unleashed and people feel they have a right to do certain things. And I think there is appropriate anger, absolutely inappropriate rage, like seeing Greta Thunberg's anger is absolutely appropriate. On the other hand, somebody who's angry because there's more African-Americans moving to their particular town needs to deal with that on a personal level and not by going out and shooting anybody. And I absolutely loved the way you connected that with climate change, that when we don't own and deal with our own rage and anger in a responsible way, we end up contributing to global warming. Absolutely. In fact, that's such a beautiful metaphor. Where am I heating up inside? Exactly. And and this is what's sort of tragic for me, because, you know, there is a number of things that I quote, but I think in, in the introduction to the book where I talk about how we, for instance, are, you know, 5% of the world's population is the United States. We consume over 60% of the world's pharmaceuticals. Or now back to the thing you were just referring to, it was just last week, I was really quite appalled to see that they've done a study that within the United States and Canada combined, since 1970, one quarter of the bird population has been lost. And that, that is a total of three billion birds. And as if it isn't heartbreaking enough to think that we're losing the Great Barrier Reef, Greenland is melting, all these things are happening. Now it's like, the bird, we're even losing the birds. And that's where I totally support Credit Thunberg's anger, which is like, that's not okay. And yet at the same time, we have to have the courage to really accept the weight of our history. You mentioned being a white male, being a white man and recognizing the horrific, just utterly inhumane things that white men have been doing to women, other cultures, other peoples, and every aspect of the planet itself. Yes. When we can have the courage to create the space to embrace that part of ourselves and our history, that's when we can actually stay present with what's happening in the present as opposed to trying to deny or hide or just avoid our past. That is so true, facing the shadow, and I think maybe that's part of my own impetus in which I go out in the world and how can I be a good example rather than a bad example? Yes, and I think that when we embrace all of the evils of our past, even if it wasn't us, you know, individually, our own fault, something really beautiful emerges from that. That's where the experience of true kindness and compassion and love for all things come from. You're absolutely right about that. It is facing those places and seeing. In fact, this happened just recently, my own little version of this. Tonio, I was watching my sister when I was back east visiting and my sister was having an argument with her husband in front of my mother and myself. And the argument is secondary. But there was this hypervigilance going on in terms of how she was expressing herself. And as I was listening to it, I was so fascinated. And then I did sort of a timeout with the argument. 
And I turned to my sister and I said, this is just amazing to me to listen to this because I realize this exists inside of me as well. And there's a part of me that's cringing as I'm hearing this, but I realize it's me. And the reason, the thing that, that I understand now when I hear you doing it is that there was an aspect when we grew up, we had a very stern father who really, there were no negotiations, no compromises, no anything. In fact, his favorite term was no ifs, ands, or buts. So that was the end of all discussion. So as a compensation, I can see this, at least in my sister and I, we got hypervigilant in terms of wanting to be heard when it comes to any discussion. And the thing I ended up doing, a little forgiveness statement for myself that very evening, I forgive myself for believing that I have to be so hypervigilant as if the rest of the world is my father. Mm-hmm. So there's that owning. So then I end up with a real piece of humility in there. And, and when I cringe at my own behavior and, and a piece of humility, it's like, oh, gosh, I really just have to look out for that. I have to be careful about that because otherwise I'm turning the world into my father, and that's not fair. That's not right. Mm-hmm. And there's so many different experiences that can cause us to lose our equanimity and perspective and get polarized into reactive responses and positions, even if just for a moment. Oh, you're absolutely right. And you know, that's why I have that one chapter in there called The Wounds, The Work, The Gifts. How far, and just, just a quick aside, how far have you been able to get into the book, Tonya? Okay, I've got my bookmark in here. <laughs> and uh, let's see, where am I? I'm up to patience. So I oh, good, good. So you're well into the spirituality section. So you already read that chapter on the wounds, the work, the gifts. Oh, yeah, that was, and, that was long ago. Yeah, yeah. So you already understand this concept that there is a very natural process, the simple fact that we all had human parents, that it's never going to be ideal. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. And from the soul, and this is an old soul idea, which is that we find our gifts by going through the wound. And, and you probably realize this as you're reading, reading the chapter. It was myself I was using as an example. And, and I can sort of elaborate a little bit. I was number three of four children. And my mother always tells me, still reminds me, she says, well, you are the one I didn't have to worry about because I, meaning me, I was the one who was always, she claimed, dancing and singing all my early years. So she never worried. But then it wasn't until I got older, I had a step-grandmother who said, oh, Rick, you were the forgotten one. And I realized that there was a certain kind of abandonment issue that got created because there was just more attention that needed to be given to my siblings. My sister ended up being deaf. My older brother, you know, the, he's the first child, and the first child is always the experiment. My younger brother being the last child, he had his own issues going on, all that sort of stuff. So I was really not paid a whole lot of attention to. And what was interesting about that, I could on one hand get bitter about the whole thing and say, oh, I didn't get the nurturing I need. Nobody paid attention to whatever. On the other hand, when I really think about it, and I've come to learn that I had to develop a capacity, a certain particularly an intuitive capacity in order to survive because nobody was giving me any tools otherwise. And it's really turned out to be an incredible blessing. But I had to do a certain amount of work to turn that wound into 
some realization that there was a gift inside, and I think this applies to every human being on this planet. Mm -hmm. And getting back to that term, soul, I, I have a confession. I absolutely love the way you use the term soul and the way you fleshed it out throughout the book. And one of the things that I have so deeply connected with, and it relates to what you were just talking about, is the soul loves trouble, or it loves these challenges. It loves these difficult issues that we face in life. Because, oh, because it's not afraid. It's not afraid of life experience. In fact, it seeks them out. It loves it. it it's like it's willing. Like you said that the soul, it can't drive. But it's totally willing to be in the passenger seat or in the back seat, even with a reckless driver, even going into an accident where people's lives are totally messed up in, in yeah. all sorts of ways. The soul loves life. Well, the soul is basically saying, you know, and, and this is my perspective, and I don't know, I mean, I just, this is the feeling I have about it, and, you know, my life experience seems to keep proving it out. The soul is basically saying, bring it on. Yes. And like that Waterman <laughs> quote I told you earlier about, you know, makes no distinction between the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right. Bring it on may include that car wreck you're talking about. It may include, let's try heroin, because it sounds like an incredible ride, even though I know it's going to turn into a disaster. Right. And let's do it just to show ourselves that no matter how much of a disaster it is, and it can be, we can still survive. Even if we don't survive this life, we're still going to survive in some way and learn from it on some level. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, and I love that you're picking up on this, Tonyo, because remember, there's that little two short little paragraphs I have in the introduction, and I can read this because it may be helpful for the listener. A distinction needs to be made from the outset between soul and spirit. Too often these words are used interchangeably. This is true in the sense that both derive from the divine. And you probably noticed in the book I tend to use the word divine rather than God because that's my way of approaching that kind of energy versus the baggage way that you were referring to, which is problematic using words like God. Anyhow, my view is that the soul encompasses everything within experience. The spirit is a part of the soul that is primarily directed toward the divine and reveals itself through aspects of the higher self, such as love, compassion, patience, and forgiveness. The spirit never really wants to get its hands dirty. In contrast, the soul is right at home in the muck of our life, our dreams, our failures, our psychological and emotional wounds, along with our creativity, our desires, and our curiosity. Depression for the spirit is a lack of connection to God. The blues for the soul is an exalted state. The difference is that the spirit is interested in only one very important relationship, but the soul embraces everything that makes us human. I just love that. I totally, totally love that. And I'm talking with Rick Halterman, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. There's so much left to talk about. I already know that I want to have you on back many more times because we have so much more to talk about. <laughs> well, it's, it's great talking to you, Tonya, because you're right there, which is really wonderful. 
really, really wonderful. And, and this is a compliment to you because, you know, as I mentioned to you in our correspondence, they did a radio tour about a year and a half ago to AM Straight Radio. In fact, it was the Fox Radio Network. And the very first, I'll give you just a quick little story. The very first station was in Kansas City, Kansas, and it was a morning thing. And this was a conservative talk show. And, of course, this is to talk about the book. And the, the very first question that this particular announcer, who is clearly a conservative person, and he quotes, I can't even remember who the, the, the writer's name is, a conservative writer. He said, Rick, this writer says four things as keys to happiness. And they were faith, family, friends, and work. And he says, so what do you think? And, and I said, you know, that's just so interesting that he would write that. I said, why would one put their faith into areas that you have no control over in your life? That happiness is an inside job. If you are going to put your happiness in something external, plan on being disappointed. The reason why I brought that up is such a pleasure because you already understand this aspect that happiness is an inside job. This is the soul work that we all need to do, whether it's addressing our shadow, you know, our wounds, whether it's, you know, creating an apology, you know, to someone that, that whether we care or not care about, that, you know, it's like, you know, I was really awful in saying what I just said there. And I need to tell you that, you know, this is what's going on with me. To do that kind of thing, that's the soul work or the soul work of, for instance, I don't care whether it's meditation or it's gardening or it's going and exercising, whatever. What does one do in the course of their life to create a little bit of distance so that you can have a reset on a regular basis and get closer to who you really are on a regular basis and you don't go out in the world with your anger or your sadness or whatever and, and expect the world to simply take it for you. Mm -hmm. And in this culture, in addition to all of our other obsessions, we're also obsessed about happiness and feeling good. And the soul, from everything I've been getting from the way you talk about it, the soul doesn't really have much interest in that. You know, it's another experience. And it's certainly, it's a feel-good experience, but that, that's been my complaint, particularly with New Age sort of thinking, which is, how can we just feel good all the time? How can we keep it safe? You know, whatever practices. And to me, it's like, no, 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 no. You're really missing a big piece here. This isn't about safety, although we need safety. Safety and security are primary concerns. We still need to go and visit the edge. We still need to go and check out these other things. You know, it enlarges who we are. I don't want to become smaller. I want to become larger. You have read that chapter on intimate relationships and those Clarissa Pinkola Estes lovely list about, you know, choosing a partner. Mm -hmm. And one of the primary things was choose a partner who makes your life bigger. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that's exactly what the soul wants. How can I keep making my life bigger somehow. Right. Always making choices that make our life bigger in every way, whether it's intimate relationships or just the way we relate to any aspect of life experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, there's so much to talk about with all of this because as you know, we could be delving into each and every chapter. We could be getting into particular poems, all that. But I really did want to create kind of a, and I didn't really realize it at the time, 
when, when I was writing, I was just writing this thing, and the key was the outline, I guess. But it turned into this roadmap, and I think I mentioned to you in one of my correspondence, there's a lovely woman who does a lot of restorative justice work up in Colorado, and she ended up taking the book to prison in Rifle, Colorado, and I ended up getting some comments from the prisoners. And since that time, the Colorado Department of Corrections has bought, I think, 25 copies of the books to put in the prison libraries up there. And I thought to myself, first I cried when I got that, you know, this request. And I was thinking, oh, my God, you know, I'm helping people who really, really, really need help, which is just so touching for me. But I realized here are people that really want a roadmap because they were never given anything at all. And they clearly did not want to buy the status quo, so they went outside the status quo, broke the law, did whatever they did. But now they're looking for a roadmap. The one comment I do remember, Tonio, from one of the prisoners, was that he said that reading Curriculum of the Soul kicks my ass, and then I have to put it down. But then after a while I pick it back up, and I get right back into it. And his last words were, this book is right on. And I was so touched because, you know, me, this little middle-class white guy, no one's ever told me anything in terms of my own life as far as, oh, Rick, you know, this is really good what you're doing. And it's just like, oh, well, maybe I will get seen in this lifetime. And, of course, that's the ego talking, not so much my soul. Yep. I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I I have that voice in, nagging at me at times as well. <laughs> and so tell me, Tonio, because I did mention this in the correspondence, how would you say your own curriculum is playing out and working out as far as you know where you are at this moment in your life? Well, despite the challenges I've had throughout my life, I feel like I have been incredibly fortunate in all the experiences that I've had because they've given me everything I've needed to make sense of it all and to to come to a really beautiful place in life. And it's not something that I ever would have expected out of the kinds of experiences that I've faced. It reminds me of a couple of things. First off, there's this wonderful line from a Bob Dylan song about winning the war after losing every battle. Yeah. And the other one about how, I think it's Rumi, pay homage. Rumi, pay homage. Yeah. So tell me, what was it with with whatever difficulties that happened in your life, what were the tools that you ended up using to get you through? I would say that the core tool, or one of the main tools, was self-reflection, always reflecting on my experience and reflecting on my thoughts and my responses to experience and continually, continually going back and reflecting on on my life experiences, not in a planned way, but just having had instilled in me this orientation to reflect as deeply as possible that my job is to go layer by layer by layer and if I, you know, end up against a wall, to just relax and completely let it go. And then when the moment is right, I'll be able to find a way into the next layer, whether it's a few minutes later, a few months later, or a few years later. So, so in essence, it would be 
really you found a great way through silence and solitude in order to get to that place. Yes. And being an only child and having this powerful contrasting experience of growing up as a child in New York City and then moving to Vermont in the woods gave me a kind of magical perspective, in a way, of a radically life-changing, life-shifting perspective and appreciation for that silence and solitude, which I was somehow able to really tap into even as a teenager, shortly after moving up to Vermont. So how interesting that you went from an intensely urban environment to an intensely rural environment And was that resonating with that part of you that needed that silence and solitude to make that happen? I would say that, you know, from the life-shattering and life-disturbing experiences that I grew up with, I needed the spaciousness of silence and solitude that being out in the woods with no means of transportation gave me to begin that long long, introspective journey of making sense of all the insanity of my life. And so since that time, you know, that that you found this tool through Silence and Solitude, has that made things in terms of navigating forward, or whether it's sideways or backwards, wherever you're moving to, has it made it easier in, in whatever future navigation comes up? Absolutely. It's given me the tools to face the most difficult challenges. And I'll just give you an example. About 15 years ago, I had a devastating separation from somebody that I deeply loved, and it destroyed me. And yet, I was committed to doing the work that I had to do somehow, even while broken on the rocks. I found somehow found the strength or the energy or impetus to reach out for whatever help I could get. And I, I used resources like Pema Chodron's book, When Things Fall Apart. And yeah, that's one I used as well. Oh, great book. And also listening to Marshall Rosenberg. He gave this amazingly wonderful example of this experience he had where he reflected on how he learned from something that Joanna Macy had said about when facing a devastating experience that pulls the carpet out from under you or pulls the ground out from under you, that you do the work of staying present with it, no matter how disorienting or devastating it is. And what I found in that experience of having my life destroyed from within, it's easy to see it as being caused by something happening from outside. But really, it's, as you said earlier about happiness, it's all an inside job. It, you know, it's how we respond to things. I realized from all of this and from all these wonderful teachers that ultimately, I didn't want to allow anything to close my heart or to shut my heart down to life. What my work was, was to stay present enough with the devastation, the catastrophe of life and not allow it to shut my heart. 
you know, there's a quote somewhere in the book, which is Martin Luther King Jr., that talks about all the kind of awful treatment he, he had endured in terms of racism. And he said, I had a choice to either you know, go into bitterness or turn it into a creative energy. And he says, thankfully, I chose the latter. And, and thankfully, you did that. Now, tell me one question as a follow-up with that relationship that had happened. What did you learn in the long run in terms of what you might apply towards a future relationship from the devastation of that previous relationship? And, and there may not be anything you can articulate, and that's okay, too. But it's just a curiosity to say, like, oh, so this, because I always think of relationships in terms of it's a dance. It's always a dance. Mm-hmm. And yes, of course, there are such awful things as domestic violence and things like that. But I'm really more interested in the relationship that, like, you know, you being in with this person, there was some dance going on. What was the piece that you brought in that you would change if you were to be doing this again? Well, I'm still learning that, but I would say for myself that I could really still love and accept this person and anyone, no matter what they do, through the most painful betrayals or misunderstandings. Because I think it, it usually boils down to misunderstanding that we, we have this tendency to take things so personally, devastatingly personally, yeah. and that... That's just a creation of our egocentric perspective, right. attempting to make sense of the world around us from a very small perspective. And I think that what I've learned, and I keep learning, is that that little perspective, that egocentric perspective, is very limited. It's very small, and that's not the direction that I want to be going in in my life, that my life is about, as you said earlier, making things bigger. Yeah, absolutely. And Tonio, Carolyn Mace would say in terms of what you decided at the end of this relationship, that's a class act to decide not to go into the bitterness and to go really more towards the loving. That's a real class act, and that doesn't happen very often. So congratulations to you for getting to that place. That's glorious. I don't know if I've gotten to that place. For me, it's always trying to figure out what part of my dance, like in, in one very devastating thing that really took me to the brink of suicide, it was the, the Byron Katie method, where you know I did the four questions. I was like, well, yes, she abandoned me, and yes, it felt awful, and yes, I'd feel better if she hadn't abandoned me. And then when I turned it around, I was like, oh, wow, I abandoned myself. Mm-hmm. Then the real work began. Yep. Byron Katie's work is part of the foundation of the work that I do as well. Yeah, great stuff, because there's, you know, there's that ego doing its projecting mm-hmm. in, in the world. We, that we, it's, just, it's so natural for what the, the ego, it's just how it is. And this is where we get to understand, like, oh, here I am projecting this thing on the world, even if unconsciously. Then how do I get to recognize it? Because isn't that the hardest thing, Tonio? The shadow is always behind us, right? And the light is always ahead of us. How do we get to turn around enough just to get a glimpse of that shadow, even a piece of the shadow, to say, I see you back there, and now I'm going to do something because my job is to bring you back into the light. And that can be so 
difficult, so challenging, because while we're making that choice or working on making that choice, we're in pain. Oh, absolutely. And how do we keep moving forward while we're in pain when there isn't really any sense of hope that anything's going to change? It's, it's like at a certain point, there's this wisdom of no hope that somehow you, you, it's like cresting a mountain or cresting a hill. Once you've reached a certain point, you can see things differently and it changes your feeling about what you're going through. Like in the dark night of the soul, which is another metaphor that fits this, when the sun rises to a point where you actually start to see light, something incredibly powerful happens. It's like a powerful energy floods our entire being and changes the way we see where we are and what we're feeling and what we're experiencing. Absolutely. And there's, you know, there's that piece of surrender that's in here. And remember, there was, I think, in one of our correspondences, and this was sort of referring to my, my younger brother and the craziness he's going through right now, which is, you know, it really kind of crumbles me because like, he's the only younger brother I get in his lifetime. But, you know, I, w- I would tell him, trust life. And you were talking about that very trusting so that when we get, you know, that dark night of the soul place, which is, I think, Joan Borsenko, the, the teacher, spoke of, she said, the dark night of the soul is between what was and not yet. And that's why it's so difficult, because, wait a minute, I have no bearings here. Mm-hmm. You know, what was clearly didn't work out. I have no idea what's going to happen up ahead. What do I do at this moment when there's nothing left? And this is where Pema Chodron, she shows up for me, and she says that wonderful thing, that this idea of how do we get used to and even play with this idea of the groundlessness of experience, that it truly is groundless when it's all said and done. All of our friends are going to die. All of our families are going to die. We're going to die. You know, we're seeing this heartbreaking thing of seeing the planet going through its phase right now, and hopefully, I think the planet will always exist, whether we will make it as a species with the planet in the future is really a huge question mark at the moment. But how do we get through this groundlessness? And you clearly had a certain amount of faith in there. What was it that kept you just enough to hang in there versus, I think, of the person who does check out? They lose their faith. They have no idea how they can even get back to who they really are. So all options have ended. I think I had gotten enough support from these wonderful beings that I've come across, like Pema Chodron and Marshall Rosenberg and Dr. Hugh Len and all these other people who are sharing their gifts that they learned through, you know, going through the, the traumas of their own lives and have come out the other end with these beautiful, life-changing gifts that they can share with the rest of us. So what happened, Tony, was you had the smarts, if, you know, for lack of any other word. They had the grace of receiving those gifts. <laughs> yes. Well, and... That was also beautiful, too, that surrender to allow that to happen, because a lot of people wouldn't even allow that. Right. And unfortunately, we're at the very, very, very end of the show, and this has been absolutely wonderful. I want to thank you so much, and we are going to do this again, perhaps next week, if you would like. 
Oh, I'd be happy to. This is just so much fun. Let me tell you very quickly that Rumi poem, because it's very short. Okay. If God said, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, there would not be one experience in my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not any act I would not bow to. Okay, until next week. Thanks so much, Tonio. Bye-bye. I've been talking with Rick Halterman. He's the author of this wonderful book we've been talking about, Curriculum of the Soul. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week.